If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. We are continuing the series, Ripe. And I think when you think of a series entitled that, your mind kind of goes in a different direction. Where's it going with this? Well, it's the whole idea of the fruit of the Spirit. And of course, uh, no fruit is good until it's ripened. And, and I believe that that's really God's message to us in Galatians chapter 5 is there's nine things that he wants ripened in our lives, those things that he wants to be maturely put into our lives. The Bible says there in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then it says, against such there is no law. Now, it's very interesting, that last phrase, against such there is no law. It, basically, what that means is you don't have to have a whole list of do's and don'ts when these other nine are in place in your life because you're fulfilling what God desires for your life in those things. Today, we're going to be looking at the spirit fruit, goodness. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever heard these two phrases? The first one is, goodness gracious. You ever heard that phrase before? That has to be Southern. It has to be. I, I can't hear someone from Ohio say, goodness gracious. I mean, you don't, you don't hear that. How, how about this? For goodness sake, that's even more Southern, isn't it? <laughs> but these are ter terms that we hear, and I think a lot of times we say things, but we really don't really know what we're really saying when we say those things. Well, this morning I do. I want us to look at that spirit fruit as it relates to good, as it relates to goodness. Now, in Scripture, good is used to describe several things. Uh, it's used to describe a gift. It's good to describe works. Uh, good is uh, used to describe fertile ground. Uh, it des describes the will of God. And it even describes a person. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, I think many of you, when you hear a pastor say, turn to Matthew chapter 1, you think you're going to hear a Christmas story, right? Well, in Matthew chapter 1, there's something very interesting that I want you to see as it relates to the man called Joseph. Now, Joseph, put yourself in his situation. We're about to read this, but Joseph is engaged to this girl, this young girl. Uh, the Bible says that they're betrothed to one another, which is really a little more than an engagement. I mean, things have been finalized, basically, uh, when you're talking about a betrothal relationship. Now, what's interesting about it is, is something comes up in the middle of this. So look at Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before the, the marriage was consummated, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, see, he's already described as the husband, even though it's a betrothed relationship, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, now think if, if you were Joseph. The angel has not appeared to you. The dream has not taken place in which you've been filled in on what's actually happening. And, and, and all of a sudden, you find out that this girl that you love, that you care for, that you want to make a life with, all of a sudden, you find that she is going to have a baby. And you've never touched her. Now, now think about how all this would play out. I mean, for Joseph, he, he must be sitting there. He must be confused. But most of all, I think many of us would find ourselves hurt by what he's just heard. And yet the Bible says this. Look at verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man. 
The word just there, some translations uh, really, uh, some say a righteous man. Some of your translations would say that he was a noble man. But all the translations imply this, that he was a good man. Now, how many of you have been around someone where someone said this about someone else? They said, he's just a good man. He's just a good man. That's kind of the way the Bible is describing Joseph. But so many times we would say he's a good man for, for many reasons, but the Bible is describing Joseph as a good man because he was a noble man. He was a righteous man. He was a just man. Now, imagine if you were in this story. Now, now with him being a good man, with him basically with his heart full of goodness, how does that translate into what we're talking about today? Look at the introduction there on your outline. Goodness literally means uprightness of heart. Uprightness of heart. It's a heart bent towards doing good. Goodness deals with our motives. It is behind all that we do or say. Goodness is godliness. I love this. Goodness is godliness lived out in practical ways. So how does one do good? How does one do good? Well, the actual word goodness is really only found in most translations in Scripture only three times. But by looking at these three verses, we can see how we can learn to do good. So, so look on your outline. First of all, finding that which is good. How, how do we do good? First of all, you've got to find that which is good. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 here on the screen. Paul says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Before you were nothing in the Lord. Before you weren't, there, there, was no co there was no existence between you and the Lord. But now you're light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So when you look at the context of what Paul is writing here, he's saying you're no longer in darkness, you're in light. Not only that, he tells us that we basically represent Christ. And as we represent Christ, we need to find what is good and acceptable to the Lord. And part of that is the fact that there's goodness associated with us. Now, here's the problem. The problem with good in our culture is that we look for the true essence of good in the wrong places. So look on your outline. I want you to see the world's good. It all begins, look on your outline, experiencing things. The world would say if you experience something in a good way, then, then that is a good thing. There is goodness associated with it. Now let me ask you a question about this. How many of you love coffee? Anybody love coffee? Raise your hand. Yeah, most of you in the room. I'm not a coffee drinker. I can't associate with this, but I watch it play out all the time. How many of you know that coffee, I understand this, uh, but I don't understand it as it associates with coffee. How many of you know that coffee is much more than something being consumed? It is an experience. How many of you have discovered that? It is. I mean, you look at, yeah, look at, oh, we got some brave ones about it. Yes, sir, that's right, that's right. It is. Coffee is an experience. Let me tell you why I know that, because no one in their right mind would go and pay $5 for a cup of coffee no, I'm just, I'm joking with you, okay? And my family does it too. But anyway, you, but you don't go to drink coffee. You, you experience coffee. Now, there, there's a pastor on our staff, and I won't make mention of who it is. But, but you can tell that his coffee is not just for consumption. It is to be cherished. It is to be experienced. And he will sit there and he, 
I mean, he looks like a little girl. I'm just, I'm, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm joking. But, but anyway, he's actually in the room right now. Okay, but anyway, the only pastor sitting in here besides myself, and I'm definitely not talking about myself. But, but anyway, coffee is not just something that you consume. It's something that you experience. You see, we live in a world, we live in a culture where everyone wants it that way. Starbucks markets itself for the experience. And more and more marketing are being done, is being done that way. And so if we can somehow have a, a positive experience, we can associate that by being a good experience. So therefore, if I experience pleasure, then that is good. If I experience pain, then that is bad. And we live in a culture that basically says if things are not, that you're experiencing are not good and those things that you want, then you need to remove yourself from those things. We're literally being taught that in many ways. We're being programmed that way in many ways. That's the reason a lot of marriages aren't surviving the test of time. Y'all, marriage is tough. They're, not all parts of marriage is good at times. I mean, it is. I mean, it, it, you have to really, it's more than the experience. There's going to be good experiences. There's going to be tough experiences. There may even be bad experiences associated with marriage. But guess what? It's not something we walk out on. But, but the world says, okay, if we're going to experience things, and those things need to be good. They don't need to infringe upon our comforts. And if I, I'm not happy, then that's not a good thing. And that's the way the world looks at good. It looks at goodness. The fallacy of the world is that good can only be found in things that bring the experiences of pleasure and comfort. Secondly, the world's good is found in knowing things. It's very interesting, but there's an idea that started back in the late 1800s. How many of you have ever studied the age of enlightenment? You ever studied that age? That age basically... Here's one of the premises that came from that age. And by the way, we're living from the fruit of something that started in a, hundred, a little over 100 years ago that's alive and well today. The fruit of all those thoughts are, have come to fruition. That's the reason we're in the trouble we are as a nation many times. But there's one thing that came out through that whole movement. And here's one thought that was said. If we could educate people, then they will do good. I've heard that over and over again. And, and even right now in some campaign promises, you, you'll hear, just if you read between the lines, if we could educate people, then people will do good. How many of you found that that's not necessarily the case? Sometimes you can educate people and they will be more evil. You can't. Education is not the answer. It's not in experiencing things that bring good necessarily. It's definitely not necessarily in knowing things that bring those things. Education does not guarantee good. Second of all, the world's good is found in having things. Wealth is seen as good. Having more is seen as good. Having less is seen as bad. These are all messages that are intertwined in our culture. It's very interesting. If you ever do a mission trip to a third world country, you're going to find how, how false this really is. You can go to a third world country. You can watch them who have nothing, praising God, lifting his name up on high, talking and singing about how good God is, and they have absolutely nothing. You take us from our Western comforts and our Western ideas about what is good, and you, you, just, you take us out of this culture, you put us in there, and you say, okay, this is it from here on out. 
we'd have a hard time singing those type praise songs because we've been bent to know and to think that good is when comforts are being met and pleasure is in place. All these things. We, I mean, Sears. How many of you remember Sears? You know, they're kind of on their way out. <laughs> But, but let me tell you about Sears. Sears, many years ago, had a campaign uh, that went like this. Our marketing campaign was this. Experience the good life. Experience the good life. How many of you remember that? Some of you are too young. Bless your heart. But anyway, take our word for it. It happened, okay? And if you really think about it, a lot of marketing is geared that way. To, to have the good life, you, you need our product, and so what we do is we associate good, and again, everything that's marketed towards us is trying to program us a certain way, but everything, as long as we have certain things and we have these things, it's associated with being good. The world's good is also found in doing things. You see, some equate goodness with doing certain things and not doing certain things. Let me tell you a little story about the Gospels. One thing that you'll find out, there's one thing I want to challenge you to do if you've never done this. I want you to go through the Gospels and I want you to look at the interactions that Jesus had with people. And you'll be amazed at some of the things you'll find. The, the people that he associated with, the sinners, the woman called in the very act of adultery and all the different things, it's amazing how he dealt with those people. And you can read those things and see it for yourself. But let me tell you, there was one group he didn't have any tolerance for. And that was the religious it's very interesting to watch his interaction with them. These were people, if you would have gone back to the first century and you would have looked at them, you would have thought they had it all together. You would have, you would have, you would have come to the conclusion that they were good. But Jesus arrives on the scene and he looks at him. He says, you're a hypocrite. He looked at, you know why Jesus could get away with that? Because he saw through their very motives. He saw through their very heart. And here's what was interesting about what he was looking at. They were good on the outside, but they were far from good on the inside. And you see, so many times in, in, the, in the whole realm of religion, let's go 2,000 years later, it's still being played out in our day. And there's all these people who are saying, well, if I do this and don't do this, then, then, then this means I'm good. But y'all, good is not in the doing. It's in, it's in the becoming and I'll show you what I mean by that in just a moment. Now, let's look on your outline. The opposite of the, world's, of the world's good is the word's good. The word's good. Now, when it comes to the word of God, we know that it's much more than words. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I'm everything. Everything you need to know about God and about the kingdom and how to even get to the kingdom is through me and about me. That's what Jesus was saying. It wasn't arrogance, it was the truth. Uh, John chapter one tells us, as it's associated with the word of God, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Skip down several verses, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know who that's referring to? It's referring to Jesus, who was a person. So, so the word, look on your outline, it's the person of God. The Bible says in Psalms 100, for the Lord is good. When it says the Lord is good, it's talking about the whole idea that at the core of who he is, he is good. The core of who he is, is goodness. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. But it all comes from the premise of the fact that he's good. 
Now, let me tell you something about goodness as it's associated with, with God and, and Jesus. L- listen to this. Goodness, when describing God, consists of these things. His righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, and his love. So when you say, when you speak of the goodness of God, it really encapsulates the way scripture presents it. It encapsulates the whole nature of who he is. I may have ever heard of the, the, the verse that basically says this, taste of the Lord and see that he is good. He is good. It is his nature. It is who he is as it relates to good. Next, we see the precepts of God. These are all things that are good. The precepts of God. Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, what does it do? Stands forever. You know another way of saying that? Cultures are gonna come and go. Cultures that have their message for their people those things will come and go. Mindsets, mindsets and, and, and uh, uh, perspectives and all these things, they're gonna come and go. But what's gonna stand the test of time? It's the word of God. You know why? Because it's good. God's word is good. What he says is good. What he teaches is good. What he commands is good. Even what he promises is good. Next. We see the purposes of God are good. Now, this is where the world and God, this is where you see the great divide. The world would say, hey, if anything's good, it offers good things the way we see good things. It's associated with pleasure. It's associated with comfort. It's associated with having things, knowing things, experiencing things. And the list goes on and on and on. And so they would say these are the terms, but God's word is really far from that premise. The, listen, we see God's goodness in his purposes. Now think of this, the purpose of his creation. If you look at Genesis chapters one and two, you'll see one word repeated over and over again in those two chapters. It's the word good. He would create something. He would literally, the scripture gives us the indication that he would create something. He'd take a step back. He'd say, that's good. He does that over and over again. You'll find it there. Near the end of the whole summation of the creation, he takes a step back and you know what he says? It's very good. It's very good. And so we see that there are things that God associates with his creation that he says are good, sometimes even very good. But then what happened in Genesis chapter three? Sin enters the world. And and there's all kinds of chaos that's injected. There's the whole chaos of evil that's that's now on the table. There's a whole idea of sin taking over the hearts of men and people being born in sin and all these things begin to happen. The whole world is shifting. Everything is changing. We see it right here in his word. And then we come to a verse like this. Romans 8, 28. Listen to this verse. And we know that all things, what does all include? All things. The good, the good experience, the possibly the bad experience, the, 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 all the purposes of God, possibly all the different things, all those things are associated with it. And we know that all things work together for what? For good, there it is. That's the word. You mean to tell me 
that things that I don't deem as good could still turn out good if God takes control of it? Most definitely. Most definitely. And we see it. He says, work together for good. Here's the premise. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You mean to tell me those things that I, that, that I really don't ever want to face, all of a sudden they possibly are injected in my life? God is calling those things good? That's exactly what he's calling them. He's saying these things can work in ways you can never imagine. So his purposes are there. Next, we see the presence from God, those gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light. So what does that mean? It means there can be things that God gives us that are good. There can be discernments. There can be wisdom. James said, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. He gives it freely. Faith is a present from God. Jesus, of course, was a present from God and even the Holy Spirit is a gift from God. Now, look on your outline. Not only are we to, be, are we to find that which is good, but be filled with that which is good. It's one thing to find something and acknowledge something as being there, but it's another thing to take that into your life. You see, a lot of people, they, they hear the gospel, they hear God's wonderful plan for their life, and they hear what Jesus offers and all that, and they look at it, they, found, they see it, but they don't embrace it. They're not filled with what they've seen. In Romans chapter 15, Paul said, Now I am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness. It's not that you've acknowledged goodness, that you've just seen it. Now you're, you're a part of it. You're receiving it into your own life, filled with all knowledge and able to encourage one another. Now look on your outline. There's three facts concerning goodness. First of all, goodness does not come from us. It's not something that, that is just solely generated from within us. Now, let me just say this. We can look around the world and we, we find pockets of goodness. You can. You can find it. But, but the goodness that I'm talking about is the goodness that's defined by the heart of God, by something that is done to glorify God, for something that is done not to glorify ourselves, not to bring attention to someone else or ourselves, but to bring attention to God. There's a difference there. Now, when Adam and Eve fell... We all fail. Did you know that? We all did. It was a universal tragedy. Adam and Eve were allowed to eat of any tree in the garden except one. And do you know what the name of that tree was? The Bible calls it the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Wow. You mean they couldn't take a part of, of that? You see, goodness in Eden was defined by doing God's will and obeying his word. At the moment of their sin, they received the knowledge of evil and its consequences, which was not known before. That was foreign to man, but now they're embracing it. From that point on, listen to this. They knew evil, but were powerless to avoid it. They knew good, but were powerless to do it. Therefore, goodness is not something we acquire naturally. It's something that's worked out in and through us. And we see that so clearly. Another fact concerning goodness, goodness can only come from God. You see, the law demonstrates to us that the true essence of goodness does not reside in the human heart. But goodness does reside in the heart of God. So the question is, how does God's goodness make us good? It all begins 
by a spiritual birth. It all begins when he comes to transform our lives. It all begins when we repent of our sins and place our faith in him and turn from our sin and turn to him. It all begins right there. That's when we are capable of fully manifesting the goodness of God in and through our lives is when that begins to take shape in our lives. Second Peter chapter one, look here on the screen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power, he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who, who, who called us by glory and virtue by which you have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. It's through these things, by allowing these things to come into our lives, by turning our lives over to him, that now we have the capability, listen, to do the things he intended for us to do before the fall. And those divine things that he can give us actually come from his own heart. And his goodness can be manifest in our own lives. He says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we are only good when we take on his divine nature Next, look at the third one. Goodness comes to us through the Holy Spirit. It seems that the Holy Spirit is, is the one that is the agent in which God uses to ripen the spiritual fruit within our lives. Let me give you an idea. Barnabas, do you remember the missionary Barnabas mentioned in the book of Acts? Listen to what the Bible says about him. He was a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit. There seems to be an association between that which is good and that is which is filled with the Holy Spirit. We must be good through the Holy Spirit before we can do good. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. So look on your outline. Our lives must consist of finding that which is good, being filled with that which is good, and lastly, and fulfilling that which is good. You see, so many times we find it, we're filled with it, but we, not, we, not, we don't necessarily allow the fulfillment of it to go through our lives. Look at 2, Tim, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Therefore, we also pray for always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Now, let me fill you in on this. This is basically what that verse is saying. Here it is. Being good is what we are on the inside. Doing good is what people see on the outside. There's a difference. The Pharisees, the religious of the first century, they were all about doing good. But you know what Jesus said about them? They weren't good. They weren't being good. They weren't becoming good. Their whole motivation for why they did, what they did was to lift themselves up. He calls them out on it. So here's what you need to understand. When I thought of this, it really changed my whole idea of what God desired for me. Did you know that God, listen, I've told you this before. Did you know that God is more interested in what you're becoming than what you are doing? Because when you're becoming all that he desires you to be, and the fruit of the Spirit is being ripened in your life, and you're maturing in those things, listen, you will do those things that are good. But it has to start with, with, with the good of, of who you're becoming and what, what's going on in your life. Remember our definition of goodness? Personal godliness lived out in practical ways. 
It is God's goodness, not our goodness, that we are to fulfill. The Holy Spirit is given to us to enable us to be good and to do good. It's him orchestrating this in our lives. And it shows up in three ways. Look on your outline. First of all, we see goodness in our daily walk. Goodness in our daily walk. Psalms 37 is is a great verse. Verse 23 says this. For the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. It is it basically is saying that it is God directing his path. It is God allowing him to walk in goodness. He becomes a good man. It's the whole idea of becoming. And he, speaking of God, delights in this man's ways. It, it, because guess where it began? It began with God, and guess what? It's going to end with God. And basically, if you really think about it, our life is not so much caught up in the doing, it is in the becoming, but the only way we become what God desires us to be is to surrender to what he's called us to be. So really, what's our role in all this? To surrender, to wake up every day and say, God, I'm surrendering my will to your will. God, I'm surrendering what I see is important to what you think is important. God, I want to live this day for you. God, I want you to order the steps of my day, lead me. As we live in relationship with other people, we are simply to do good. But what is good? Listen to this. The Bible talks about the times of the judges. How many of you know in the scripture, you have the book of Joshua. You've heard of Joshua. That's a conquering book. And then you, the, right after that is the book of Judges. It, it's a book basically where there's no victory. There's hardly any any victory that is there is short-lived and it's replaced with more dysfunction. Now, let me tell you what everybody said during that day. Here's what the Bible says over and over through the whole book. These days were marked as though in, in, in such a way in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It could easily have said what was good in their own eyes. They did what was, what was there. So the Bible says this, however. There is a way that seems right to a man or seems good to a man that leads where? To destruction. There's a lot of people. Let me just tell you this. You might find it hard to believe, but it's true. I've lived long enough to see this play out. There's a lot of people out there who think they know, who are going based on their own directions, who are basically going the way that they see that they think is right that only ends in destruction. You see, it is possible to have steps that seem good that lead to destruction. How how many of you, um, some of you may be too young to to, to remember this. How many of you remember when John F. K. Jr.? I've shared this with you before, but it's a great illustration here. Do you remember he went down in his own private plane that he was flying? Do you remember that? After all the investigations, they determined that John F. K. Jr., not JFK, it's the son, that that plane in which he was going, they, the, investigators, the investigators, investigation showed that there was nothing mechanically wrong with the plane. And the only thing that they can seem to pick up from some of the recordings and from some of the things that were happening is that possibly he had a bout with what is called vertigo. You ever heard of vertigo? Well, it's in the news even today. There's a golfer that had a bout with it on Friday and Played yesterday, and I mean, it was very tough. I mean, he literally, when it hit him, he just fell flat on his face almost. But they said John F.K., JFK, was basically flying the plane, and if, 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 if the theory is proven to be correct, here's what this means. 
that all the gauges inside the plane, the cockpit there, were probably accurate in what they were telling him. And so everything was right. I mean, the gauges were what they were supposed to say. But they say a person with vertigo, everything seems wrong. There seems to be something that's right, but it's really wrong. And so if vertigo literally did hit him, then all of a sudden the gauges made no sense. He, he, he would have written those things off because he would have thought that he was flying upright when he possibly he could have been upside down. And all that confusion was associated with that. You see, that's how many people are living their lives. If you were to look at the instrument panels if, as the word of God, the true word of God, and let's just say it played out to, to be that way and it is that way and, and, and it, we can trust those things. But we're living in a world that's sending all these different messages and all the messages are receiving and we're hearing all this and we're getting that message and all of a sudden, for all we know, we may be flying upside down because we quit looking at the gauges as to what we know is right and we're doing everything based on what we're feeling and what seems to be right, and what seems to be good. You see, there is only one source for determining what is good, and it's God's word. It's God's word. Next, goodness in our daily works. Good works do not save us, but the Christian life should be characterized by good works. Titus chapter two, Paul's writing this young pastor. He says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. You're to be a pattern of good works. You're to show people what this looks like. How many of you remember when you were young? Uh, well, some of you do, possibly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> how many of you remember when you were learning how to write your letters? Do you remember the school teachers sending home papers with you where you had to trace the dotted lines to, to learn how to write the right letter? The pattern was there. And if you just followed the pattern, you would have done good. And what you see here is basically Paul is telling Timothy, you be a pattern of good. Where other people, all they got to do is trace the lines of your life and that they be right and that they would be good. That's what he's telling them here. So we are not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Someone has said that goodness literally is love in action, simply living out our love in practical ways. Thirdly, goodness in our daily witness. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Gentiles would have been the lost world. That when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may, by your good works, those things that are evident in your life, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation is when the Lord comes back that you're still be found as good and their testimony and their witness of you is false, but that you've left a good pattern of life. You see, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your, let your light shine before men that they may see what? Your good works and praise your heavenly Father. You see, our lives should be about making Jesus known and glorifying him. Last week, we looked at kindness. Here's the whole idea. Our kindness, as we said last week, can be the path that leads others to God. Just our kindness. While our goodness can bring attention to God. Listen, how many of you know that in the news today, the Charleston shootings, you know all about that? You've heard all about it? You've heard of the terror that was there Wednesday night and that Bible study and that prayer service? I think a lot of people are looking at it and say, here's what many, I've heard even people say this, how could God allow this to happen? 
where can any good come of this? But you know what's interesting? How many of you have, have seen some of the news uh, that's going out right now? Did you know that the responses of the people who were in that church the night of the shootings, that they're getting attention for God? Listen, when the New York Times picks up a story and it's presenting God in a good light, <laughs> you've got a good thing going on. <laughs> you've brought the right kind of attention. Listen to this. A look at statements to Charleston Church concerning the shooting suspect. This is what they told the man who went into that church and killed many of their loved ones. One person in the church said this, we welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You've killed some of the most beautiful people I know. Every fiber in my body hurts and I'll never be the same. How many of you can identify that that's probably true? But you see, it went further than that. Here's what another one said. One of them said, I forgive you. Speaking to the one that shot up the place. I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. To repent, to confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, that being Christ, so that he can change your ways. Think about that. A person who had a loved one killed by this person. And all of a sudden, that person is reaching out saying, I forgive you. We forgive you. Turn to the only one who can help you. You hear the compassion in the person. Here's another one. This is a daughter. The mother was taken. I forgive you. You took something really precious away from me. I will never talk to her again, at least in this life. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. It hurts me. It hurts a lot of people, but God can forgive you and I forgive you. Y'all, that's what our lives should look like. It is a picture of goodness. But so many times the world says, no, only goodness can be portrayed when our comforts are being met, the pleasures are happening in my life. I have certain things, I know certain things, and I'm doing certain things. But y'all, your whole world could be falling apart. And you could be one to say, you know something? In the midst of it, God is good. That gets the attention of the world that the gospel may be presented. And that's what's going on in Charleston. I heard someone who came in uh, uh, for the, the service basically say there's a service going on on television that you can actually see the worship service going on this morning there. And you know what they're doing? They're praising God, thanking God for his goodness. And y'all, that's what we can do, no matter what we're faced with. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now, and we just thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for the way that you've provided so much for us, Lord. And so many times we get so caught up in the, the blessings of having and, and, and experiencing and doing, and sometimes we just forget about really what it's really all about. It's about that we can make you glor that we can glorify your name, that we can make you known. Father, I do pray for that ch church there in Charleston, Father, and pray that you just continue to allow them to be a light to, to our nation, Father, as we hear more and more about how your word says that we are to conduct our lives and how we are to, to, to respond to certain evils that take place in our lives. Father, I pray for the one that may be here today. Maybe they're being mistreated. Maybe they don't understand why evil is being done upon them or what they're going through. They don't understand it. 
But maybe everything within them is still, there's a still a glimmer just crying out to you who is saying, I know that you're good, Lord, but I don't understand why these bad things, these tough things continue to happen in my life. Father, I pray that you'll make yourself known to that person here today. Father, for the person that, that's never tasted of you, never come to you on your terms, turn from their sin, turn to you, place their faith in you. Father, maybe today, if there's someone here today that would like to take that step, the taste of you, to see that you are good, Father, I pray today will be the day they do that. We just thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge this morning. Have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation. Myself and Gary will be here at the front.